Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. And this is Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. And today we are talking about the diary of a country priest, chapters five and six. And it is just Sean and I today. Big news, we fired David because yeah. <laughs> he, uh, I can't even think of an imaginary reason to fire David. Can you? Yeah. The, uh, the the truth is stranger than fiction. You won't even believe it, so we can't tell you. There you go. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is a great story about, oh, who was it? An author. You will probably know this story, <laughs> knowing you, Sean, about, it was like circulating on social media a while ago, oh. and it has become part of the vernacular of our household oh. and my friendship with my good friend, Emily. And it goes like this. Someone was invited to a party. It was an author of some in like a 20th century author. Okay. I cannot remember who it was. Um, Truman Capote, maybe? It was, well, anyway. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. That was the name that came to mind when I started guessing. Really? Yeah, it's weirdly probably enough. him then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he was invited to a party. He didn't want to go. And he responded with one sentence. I must decline for secret reasons. <laughs> And I just think that's like the best thing ever. Like, I just, I, I, I will never say that to anybody who's not in on the joke because I'm, I, I'm not bold enough or unkind enough, but I just think yeah, it's that's great. Right. So we fired David for secret reasons. For secret reasons. Yeah. Actually, he's not fired. This is how rumors get started. He is just sick today and cannot speak. His voice is out. And so Sean and I said, we would be happy to record uh, just the two of us. We have plenty to say about this section yeah. of Diary of a Country Priest. Um, David my... has taken on our suffering uh, into oh. himself. And now he's he's ill on our behalf. We probably should fire him then. Just make him yeah. suffer more so he'd get more <laughs> glory in the kingdom. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. All right. David. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. This is what happens when you don't show up for close <laughs> <laughs> Um. All right. So I have a big question. This is a kind of a Davidic type question. Ooh. Um. I and so I, in honor of David, this is my question. Right. This we've all agreed. I think. Um. Is this actually a very that, good book? Oh, man. Um, I have so many thoughts on that. I've actually finished the book. I couldn't put it down after this section. So I yeah. went ahead and read oh, it. I get it. Um, anyway, I, um, this is a book that kind of slow rolls. Right? Mm-hmm. It, be, it, mm-hmm. it opens up like wine as you read it, right? It has yeah. to sit in the yeah. air. It has to linger. Uh, at the, the first couple of drafts are a little bit like... I don't know if I get this wine, right? Um, and then after a while, it mellows, and you're like, "This is amazing." And this is a book like that, um, and and so I wanted to ask you, Sean, about the merits of that. What are your? This is a judgment question, a preference question, um, and I think it is a literary question as well because I can understand why many would read the first couple of chapters and put this book aside. I don't get it. Um, no. It's a little bit boring. What's happening? Right. Um, I want to like it because uh, it's on all the lists, but no, nah, I just may. Part of it, I just don't really understand it. And so, but as you read it, it just it is this section was absolutely stunning oh yeah um and so and it just gets better even after this it just gets better and so i'm what are, what is your, what are your thoughts and opinions and what are the merits of such a structure in a novel well before even talking about the merits mm-hmm. uh, i'd say it's a big risk to write a novel like that uh and so maybe, maybe that's one of the merits there's there's courage involved uh on the writer's part in writing a novel like that, and even more so now than when Bernanos was writing, because we are so geared toward entertainment right, that will immediately grab and hold our attention uh, without us having to do much on our part uh, to participate in order to get that, uh, uh, spark that interest. And... <clears throat> Uh, this novel definitely does not does not 
work very hard to do that. It's not titillating in the opening chapters. Uh, but it's very much true to life in that way, that there are so many worthy things that are uh, that don't yield their pleasures or their goodness or even their beauty right away. And there's a, a lot of virtue to be had in learning to labor to the point that you can enjoy those deeper beauties and truths. And I think it's also a, a good practice then in the right response to authority of some kind. The fact that this book is on all the lists <laughs> uh, is is a testimony to something good and worthy about it. Uh, and so it's it's really valuable then to encounter a book like this and be tested by a book like this. Uh, uh, the life of of a Christian is the same. Right? The the priest is living this as uh, in his vocation, and he's trying to uh, struggle through the the realization that he has in these chapters that perhaps his entire spiritual existence is frozen in <laughs> a, a moment of Christ's passion. Uh, but on a smaller scale for every person, the the promise of <clears throat> the the greatest rewards of one's life uh, actually not coming to them in this life is is like a novel that starts out slow <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah. there's there's a lot that has to be uh taken on faith in the understanding that that the better part will come later uh that the wine will uh will mellow or or that uh the person hosting the feast actually saves the best wine for last oh that's great i really love that so to a couple minutes ago, you said the priest is frozen in a moment of Christ's passion. Will you elaborate on that a little bit and what we see in this section? Yeah, I do want to. Should we briefly do our synopsis of what has happened in this yes. portion? Right. So uh, chapter five, the big event is the priest's encounter with the Comtesse, who... <clears throat> reveals that she is and he he perceives in her and she sort of uh, corroborates what he sees there uh that she is obsessed with the memory of her dead son uh to a, to a point that is detrimental to her faith uh and unbeknownst to the priest and perhaps even to her uh she is near death and so there's a there's an extra of poignancy to this interview that they have, uh, not knowing how close to death she is. The priest, uh, perhaps against maybe not his better judgment, but against the uh, the better judgment of the kinds of priests he's sometimes talking to in this novel, uh, especially the the quote unquote miserable old ones. Uh, he. He sort of pushes her to a moment of spiritual crisis uh, and speaks some very firm, hard words to her, uh, which provokes a transformative moment of genuine repentance and grace for her. Uh, then she does something very dramatic. She takes from her neck a golden locket that has a lock of her son's hair in it. Uh, and throws it into the fire. The priest, su surprised and uh, you know, troubled at this gesture, reaches into the flames, reaches his hand into the flames to, to pull out the locket. Uh, and that's essentially the end of their of their interview. He, uh, he almost goes so far as to chastise her for having uh, gone gone so far, or to tell her at least, you know, you didn't need to do that. Uh, but they have, in the midst of that conversation, they have, uh, there's a great exchange about uh, the nature of good and evil and of human loving and uh, what damnation looks like. 
and the priest briefly describes for her or uh, paints for her this image of the human soul no longer capable of loving and also no longer capable of uh, allowing other people a share in their suffering. Uh, and he he wins her soul in the process and goes away uh, intending to, I think, I think they, uh, she, they arrange for her to come to him for confession. Uh, and a few hours later, she sends him a note and says, I know I'm actually, I'm at peace. I'm going to go see my normal confessor in the morning. Uh, you know, thank you. Bless you. I'm a, I'm a new soul. And then he hears in the morning that she has died in the night. <laughs> uh, the family drama that follows is kind of sordid. Uh, Mademoiselle Chantal, right? Uh, Chantal, is that her name? Yeah. Yep, that's right. She uh, does not seem to have, well, I think we've already heard from her own lips, she doesn't have much uh, regard for her mother at this point. Uh, and so she doesn't grieve very much and then immediately takes uh, takes control of the house and uh, sends away the, uh, the the nurse who has been having an affair with her father <clears throat> and spreads some kind of slanderous story about the priest and how he behaved towards her mother which leads some people to believe he excited her to the point of, of, uh, death. Death. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and so he, he has to bear a number of interviews with other priests. Uh, one who is a relative of, of the, the families. And then, uh, of course his mentor, uh, de Torsi. And is that all chapter five? It's so long. These sections, yeah, these chapter chapters are very long. long. And then chapter six is largely, but it's, it's the aftermath. Mm -hmm. And late in chapter six, he is out doing his rounds, his priestly rounds, and uh, his illness comes upon him pretty severely. And he uh, passes out near the house of the little girl who's always so wicked to him, <laughs> uh, from his catechism class. And in the early morning, she finds him and cleans him up and speaks rather candidly with him uh, and then sees to it that he's able to sort of limp away home before anyone else discovers him uh, and uh, gets the wrong idea about why he's passed out in the gutter. Yes. And meanwhile, he's getting sicker. Right. Yes. Like, and yeah. he's, and he's passed out in the gutter, vomiting blood. Yeah. Yeah. And we get the impression that, that the, the talk and gossip is, is becoming more aggressive about him being a, a drunkard. An alcoholic. Yes. Yeah. And there's a misunderstanding when, is it the, is it when the Comte walks in? There are or a couple is it of the moments. Priest? Yeah, so the Comte sees a bottle of wine in his cabinet, uh -huh. and uh, it's at least an awkward moment. And then it's de Torcy uh, who walks Torcy in and he knocks surprises over. him and he, he yeah. knocks the bottle of wine over and and, and uh, Torcy rebukes him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's rumor and all of this, then I'm really glad that, that we're doing this synopsis before talking about the representation of the passion in the life of the priest, because we're seeing, you know, unfounded rumors, accusations, yeah. um, being leveled against him. Is he, talk, talk a little bit about the passion that you brought up. And then I'm really curious whether you think he's a Christ figure in, uh, or, or what? What else possibly could he um, could be going on on that kind of metaphorical level of interpretation here? Yeah. So the 
the passion language enters when I think it's that same encounter with the Torsi who at first is angry with him uh, and then mellows. And I think it's because the Torsi's understanding of the situation develops pretty rapidly. And uh, he, he makes this fascinating claim about priests or ministers that each is each has their own sort of fixed disposition uh and the way he uh instead of you know going myers-briggs or enneagram (laughs) uh, the way he characterizes it is each of us uh are myself you our priestly brothers each of us is uh, rooted in a moment in Christ's life. And he allows that for some, that might be a very benign moment, you know, walking down the road uh, to Galilee and uh, not much is happening and it's a sunny day and that's great. Or uh, the wedding at Cana and there's lots of wine and, you know, nobody's sad. And uh, De Torsi says he suspects his own moment is when the apostles are uh, drowsing in the Garden of Gethsemane and Christ uh, asks that withering uh, <laughs> question, could you not, uh, could you not wait with watch, could you not, could you not wait, could you not pray for an hour? Uh, and it's at this moment that, that our priest suspects his moment is in the, the heart of the passion, in the midst of, of Christ's agony and suffering. And so I think de Torsi situates the metaphor correctly in the moment he identifies that the priests are, if we're looking for some kind of allegory, the priests are apostolic. Uh, so maybe to say that that our priest is uh, meant to be like Christ is accurate, but not the best way to talk about it. Uh, the idea is every everyone is invited to participate in the sufferings of Christ. And St. Paul talks this way. Uh, just some more than others. Uh, and so I think, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I really love that. I loved that whole conversation. I thought it was wonderful. Um, and I, of course, walk away thinking, if that's true, where... Like, where would I be? Right. Like, and, mm-hmm, right. and, and, and that was a very fruitful personal reflection for me, um, that I took away from reading this novel. Like I sat down and, you know, I was at a monastery last week and I was mm-hmm. journaling and just thinking about that and thinking about what a great, as, because I'm a, I'm a Christian, right. And you are, and m- most of many of our listeners are, um, that, I just thought that was such a powerful way to look at our lives, like to look back on our lives, not, and not to your point, not in a way that puts each of us in a box or is trying to find like my geez, life of Jesus personality type, right? Like um, <laughs> yeah. not that. Um, Which that diet be, fits your Jesus right, type? Exactly. Yeah. Like a very big misuse of this very fruitful spiritual contemplation, but it, it sparked a remembrance of life for me. Uh, and looking back and, and I was able to see the work of, of God in my life in a new light, in a different light, one I had never yeah. thought of before that came through that conversation that de Torsi had with the priest. And, and I, I, I guess I would invite our listeners or, you know, to, to do the same because this is a book that has so, sparked such personal, um, an introspective reaction to it because mm-hmm. the priest is so introspective. Then I kind of take that mantle upon myself as I'm reading, I'm entering into his life and then more fully entering into my own yeah. through many of these spiritual reflections. Um, so anyway, I, I, I just really loved that whole conversation. I thought it was and, beautiful. And I think the priest, I think it is actually uh, transformative for the priest too. It's at that point that he really starts to embrace that role as the uh, the suffering servant. He 
right? Because he's thinking in terms of, and at, at first he's almost uh, dreading the reality right? that he is uh, stuck or fixed in in a a moment of Christ's suffering, uh, right? It's not choose your choose your moment in Christ's life that's going to define you. I mean, there there might be an right, uh, some, right. an element of that that's valid, but uh, that's not yeah. those are not the terms that they're talking in and thinking in. It's discern which moment it is that you have been fixed in uh, by some power outside of your control. And um, that's when he really begins to to embrace the the possibility that he's meant for suffering, right? Yes, uh, and it's for the life of the world. To your point, yeah. like that, yeah. it's it's not a personality test. That's like a funny joke because right. that's so far from what the what Detorsi is saying to him. Yeah. He's not saying use this to define yourself. He's saying submit yourself to participation in the sufferings of Christ for the life of the world. Yeah. And, and the priest finds like his, his tears. I noticed his tears so much in this section. Yeah. Um, how, how his, his tears reflect his participation in the life of Christ, his, his walking down the Via Dolorosa, right. That the way of tears, the way of yeah. suffering. Um, and, and that if that is, that's, part of Christ in Gethsemane, the tears of blood that he weeps. Yeah. Um, and I, there's even a reference to that in the reading. I think it might be next week though. So forgive me um, that there's that his tears are tears of spiritual. They are sowing spiritual work in the world in participation with the sufferings of Christ, but they are like, like Christ's sufferings misinterpreted by everybody around him. And he's so full of fear that his tears make him weak, but really they are a source of spiritual strength to him and yes. to everybody else. Um, but even in others see him as weak because of his uh, propensity to emotion and to, as he bears all of this suffering. Uh, and I, I, I thought that that paradox and, I don't want to say contradiction because it's it's so clearly re the tears are so clearly redemptive as we yeah. see them through the diary, uh, but that paradox of of him taking on the sufferings of other and others so much that he relieves their sufferings <laughs> and then they judge him for it, right? <laughs> and yeah. see him as weak when he is bearing what they cannot bear without sin. Yeah, and but I just it, thought it, that was so powerful. In this chapter, though, we do, or in these chapters, we start to see the fruit that that's bearing and going to bear. To your point about his tears, it's, it's in that interview with the contest that he begins to think it's not going to go well, or he's not going to be able to say what, what she needs to hear. And then the line is, uh, and God helped me, and uh, I shed a tear. And he, he sheds a single tear. And he attributes it to God's help. The thing that God did for me was make me cry. And she sees his tear and changes uh, and actually softens towards him because she begins to care for him in his weakness. Right? She even says to him, I'm stronger than you are. Uh, take, <laughs> take a seat. Yeah. And, and the more he embraces sort of his weakness and suffering or sorrow, uh, the more we start to see, especially uh, beginning in chapter seven, so that's anticipating a little bit. Uh, but even at the very end of chapter six, um, with with the girl who he's been at, at odds with uh, so often, uh, the those who are the most broken uh, and who are themselves suffering most uh, see his weakness and his suffering, and. Uh, respond to it, right? They open up to him in a way that uh, they wouldn't maybe to some of the other kinds of priests that have been described in the book. Uh, they've put on a mask uh, that they're only willing to drop in front of someone they don't fear as a, or they don't perceive as a threat. Hmm. Uh, there's no strength in him. Uh, to threaten them. And so they're willing to be vulnerable because he is vulnerable. 
yeah, and so he really suffering is revealed as his superpower. <laughs> I agree totally. Chapters, yeah. Boy, I'm not so right. That's exactly yeah. right. And it it sheds. I feel like this is a novel that sheds so much light on Christ's words about when we are weak, then we are strong. Take yeah. up your cross. Like all this, this calling to participate in his life through self-denial and co-suffering is so clearly displayed in the priest. Uh, and I, I think that that's true, certainly for all Christians. Uh, but this, I think, is also a book that for me just highlighted the priesthood uh, and, and an understanding within liturgical traditions of what a priest the role of priests, the fact that this priest is this kind of person, yeah. uh, and, and that this kind of person became a priest. And then his, what would be weakness in a, uh, in a different kind of vocation becomes to your point, his superpower because he is a priest. Yeah. And, and, and what you just said, I think is also true about how people, uh, confess to him and share their inner life with him because he is this kind of man and because he is a priest. And so that unity of his personhood with his priesthood uh, uh, is so powerful and nobody sees it, not even himself. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, a mis it's a mystery that's hidden uh, to himself and to all the people that he's helping to save. Right. And yeah. it's only revealed in this diary. And so I I want to talk about the uh, interview with these two women that we see as conversations with these two women, with Serafita, the girl who's cruel to him, uh, and also with a Comtesse. Uh, but before that, because of what you just said, I want to hear your thoughts on what purpose does the diary play? Hmm. Not to us, that's obvious, right? We need, this is the only way we ever get to see the life of this priest. Right. But in the life of the priest, what is the role of his diary? Uh, yeah. What a great question. So good. Hope we should, hope we can answer this question. <laughs> or at least begin uh, to scratch the surface, maybe open yeah. it up. Maybe this is the door to Narnia, just a conversation. That's right. That's to, right. To just getting reflection uh i i was thinking about this question this week and uh i don't know i don't know if i have a good answer but it has definitely become something other than what it was at the beginning uh there seemed at every at every point every chapter uh or two uh, we see him reflecting, if only briefly, on his relationship to the diary. And uh, it has certainly become more uh, important to him. But the way he thinks about it has, has shifted in three and four. Well, in chapter one, he's not sure he's even going to continue this for very long or how fruitful it's going to be. He sets a deadline and says, okay, I'll keep a diary until, uh, you know, the end of the year. And, uh, that'll probably be that. As he goes on, he becomes more determined to, to preserve the diary, not to throw it away, uh, not to discontinue the practice of keeping it in three and four. He, he's having his struggles and he, uh, rips out, or amends large portions of it. Uh, and so it's very raw and sincere, but he seems to be reflecting by writing. And then by this point, he even comments a couple of times and says, these aren't the exact words, uh, but this is the gist of it. And so I think at this point, the diary it's also less jumpy and spotty uh, i was thinking uh of pascal uh blaise pascal his pensées uh that are these you know, like aphoristic little uh meditations or reflections and uh they kind of jump around sometimes they're short sometimes they're long and the first few chapters of this book feel a little like that 
Uh, but by chapters four and five, the it's a narrative. It's a, a well-organized, lengthy narrative. Uh, and I think we see then the priest here uh, reflecting before he writes. And so this has become some kind of, or a different kind of record. Uh, maybe that's, maybe it has become finally a record where he, that he's thinking about as a way of preserving some intelligible account. He's talking now about someone else reading the diary. He has some kind of imagined ideal reader. I don't know if it's another priest, if it's uh, <laughs> uh, a parishioner, if it's just God himself, but he's, he sometimes makes reference to the the imagined idea of someone reading this diary after he's gone. So I don't know if that helps or how, it's not very concrete, but I think that's uh, sort of the progression that his relationship has gone through to well, the diary. This this isn't a very concrete novel, right? It's fluid. Yeah. It's it's develops as it goes. The form of it changes along with the form of his mind and his need for the diary, right? I think that that's to your point about how the the structure uh, of this novel is a bit of a risk. Um, it's and I think it was you that said in the first episode. It must have been because you're the only one who had read it before. That it's a novel that reveals itself backwards, yeah. and so in looking back at this point, it seems to me that his he's a, the first couple chapters he's establishing a relationship with this not with his with his diary, yeah. and then as as these events occur and he's found in a sense, a narrative voice, even within himself, mm -hmm. he's able to preserve a record. I find it really interesting uh, that the redacted portions. And so I'm making a note to talk about this next week. Cause I do have a theory about the diary yeah. um, in relation to the end of the novel yeah, right. um, that I'd, I'd love to talk about with you and David next week. Um, the end, and I'm curious about the redacted portions in um kind of in relation to that. So, you know, tune in next week, listeners. Yeah. Um, um, but that uh I, I like what you're saying. I think also the novel, or I keep saying novel, the diary is 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 in lieu of a friend. Yeah. Right. He has somebody that he can talk, somebody, quote, air quotes, that he can talk to in a way he doesn't even tell. De Torsi, yeah, um, who is an, a, a confessor to him, but he never talks to De Torsi about his health and his pain. Um, and his, he really doesn't talk to anybody other than the diary. He doesn't, he doesn't talk to anybody. And he, he suspects that he has for a while that he's become worse at praying. Hmm. Uh, and he he sort of accuses himself of uh, seeming seeming to pray less or feeling like he's he's uh, become worse at praying. Uh, but I think that might also just be uh, an effect of his changing relationship to the diary. I mean, he's mm. he's also talking to God. Uh, the diary is partly the praying that he's doing, uh, which is not maybe. Um, not to sort of reduce praying to like whatever therapeutic uh, habit right. you choose. But uh, I think that there's, I think there's a, a big element of prayer in how he's using mm -hmm. the diary. Right. And uh, that maybe even is lost on him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. That's good. So let's talk about his conversation with the Comtesse. I, I want to hear, I mean, those, the spiritual reflections there are just so profound and we cannot, delve into all of them yeah. um yeah, yeah. they're so they're just worth reading over and over again um i just i just loved it but there's two two moments on a literary level if i say if i was teaching this book in a in a classroom which that would be quite a quite an endeavor <laughs> i don't yeah. know how you do yeah. that <laughs> but if i was um and we got to this conversation afterwards i would say to my students should the comtesse or should the priest have stopped the comtesse from burning the lock of hair? Yeah. Argue from both sides. Uh-huh. 
using examples and quotes from the text. <laughs> that is what I would say. So yeah. um, I would, that moment was so just what a, what a powerful moment. Oh, yeah. So I guess I'm going to ask you the same question, right? Yeah. Um, where was that a redemptive act on her part and the priest <laughs> part? Um, or was he right to stop her or was like, what was happening there and how do you interpret it? Okay. This is going to seem like I'm cheating somehow, but I want to slow roll my answer by asking you a related question. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, because question with the question. This moment becomes really important. And he, part of the slander uh, that is leveled against him going forward hinges on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the next time he sees de Torsi, de Torsi uh, is at least briefly is angry with him because he believes, based on the daughter's testimony, that the priest forced her, forced the comtesse to throw the locket into the fire as right. some sort of demonstration of her repentance. Repentance of some kind, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so my question to you is, why does that, why does the distinction matter? Uh, why, like, why is DeTorsi upset about this? What would, what would, what would be the difference uh, right. between yeah. the priest compelling her and her doing it of her own volition? It's a good question because uh, priests can impose penances uh, upon their those who have come to confession. This right. isn't a confession, although I think right. it functions as a confession, right? Yeah. She dies that night, I believe sacramentally. I mean, I guess that would be an interpretive question, but I would say this does function as a confession in her life, a yeah. conversion and a, and a confession before death. Um and an absolution. I I think that um, the difference would be the coercion, since it's not a confession officially, right? The priest to to force a mother to uh, to destroy a uh, a lock of hair from her dead child is a I mean, it frankly is a barbaric thing for somebody to do. That would yeah. be a, a terrible thing for someone to do. Yeah. Um, spiritually abusive in every way to use a very modern term, right? Um, <laughs> and, uh, is it against her will? Um, or using or kind of imposing his will, uh, as, uh, as if, if it isn't against her, it, it's either manipulating or imposing, right? Yeah. Or coercing. Um, and so that would be bad. And of course, it would then create a psychological uh, crisis for her, which could lead either to uh, death, like either suicide or um, um, or cause enough physical trauma on her system from the psychological trauma that, that she could have died from, from her yeah. heart condition. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that would be a fair accusation um, even if he meant well, it would be wrong. Um, so I think that that's the distinction. Right. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. Uh, and I, that's the point that I think is, is worth teasing out in order to answer the question. Right. I think, I think it would have been, I think it would have been, uh, wrong of him to, uh, force her to that act, compel her to do that. Uh, but it's so remarkably different when she is doing it of her own free choice. Right. And it's so jarring, so surprising, uh, the sort of utter abandonment of, not of her son, but of the idol that has sort of, uh, that looks like her son in her memory. Right. Uh, that she is freely as a result of, uh, her you know, this legitimate repentance that she's freely casting away. Uh, I mean, it's it's very much a gospel image. Right? If your if your eye offends, pluck it out and throw it in the fire. This she's been wearing this uh, of yeah, idol, uh, right? That has come between her and God for so long, uh, and she's 
uh, utterly, utterly parting ways with it. Uh, and yet in his compassion for her, uh, he is then moved to try and save it, not not as the idol that it is, but as the as you said, like, as the link to to her son, who she who she lost and who she loved. So I don't think I don't think there was any wrongdoing in the actual moment. Uh, I think hers was a, a a genuine and laudable act. Uh, but also his <laughs> trying to trying to stop her or reverse the act was also in itself uh, laudable. And he, you know, he's uh, wounded as a result, uh, which probably also went a long way in, <laughs> in cementing her her view of him in those last mm. moments. Yeah, I like that. I think that's right. I at first I thought that he shouldn't have done it but then when i stopped and thought about it i changed my mind yeah. because i think it was i think it was exactly just i think it was perfect she had to cast it away right and be willing to part with it now this is a particularly poignant moment for those christians who believe in relics right who, who mm-hmm. believe in the that that somehow that things can hold a sacramental power that, that once they are lost, they're gone. Right. Right. Um, So in, in casting this away, she is severing a link with her son in a very physical way, not just a spiritual or emotional way. Um, And so at first I thought she should, that, that she, I didn't know if she was right to do it or not, Mm -hmm. but then I thought, Yes, that's a beautiful thing for her to do, to cast away. But then for him, but then the reason that I thought that, the reason I stopped and thought, no, he did the right thing is because he was suffering. And anytime the priest is suffering (laughs) on behalf of others, it is good so far, right? Like, um, and so I thought, well, he's hurting himself. He's wounding himself in the fire. That must be then a literary as well as a spiritual signal that something redemptive is happening. How could it be that casting it away for her was redemptive and for saving it from him was redemptive? Like, and I, I think that they, it is because mm-hmm. she had to renounce that idol. Right. And then he becomes this mediatorial figure that says, now that you have renounced it, you may have it back. You may have it back. Yeah. Right. And, and that is Christ. That is the message of Christ. That's the work of Christ. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow, and then die to your flesh. And then all will be given back to you redeemed. Yeah either in this life or the life to come. Um, it reminded me so much of, I'm sure you thought of it too, of Lewis's The Great Divorce, right? Oh, yeah. That yep. the woman in Who The Great Divorce- Who cannot let go of her son. Cannot let yeah. go of her son. And she chooses hell. She yeah. goes back to hell and says to the narrator of the story, if I could have my son's soul back, I would take him with me to hell. Right. Yeah. And the and the mother in this and here says essentially the same thing. I and, hate God. I yeah. would do anything. I want my son and I would take him from the arms of God so that I can have him. That's right. And then yeah, and he Lewis has to paint and, that picture. Ahead. The priest has to paint that picture that Lewis paints. Listen, yeah. you you will cling to him until the, the time that you are severed from him eternally Mm -hmm. uh and so the the physical action with the locket that's casting away and the restoration is just emblematic of of the greater reality that even the priest is trying to impress upon her right well and lewis says in the great divorce and i think we see it not directly said but alluded to here that uh the lesser loves when they fall have a lesser diabolical that's right. Significance, yeah. right? But the greater the love, if mother love, he calls it mother love in the great divorce. And he says, if mother love is the greatest love, then it has the darkest, deepest fall. Yeah. And I, and, and that I think we see here in Diary of a Country Priest in such a powerful and beautiful, poignant, and I mean, re- like wrenching way. Um, but in in the great divorce, the mother is lost. She returns yeah. to hell yeah. rather than submit her love to Christ. But here we see it redeemed. Um, I was so happy. 
when it was redeemed. I, I like the book is so heavy. So my, my emotional reaction was so, I was so happy. I was like rejoicing. And I wonder if that was part of the, like, again, intentional, right. On the part of, of Bernanos to give us one glaring moment of redemption in this book that makes all of it worth it. Right. Um, I, that was just so, so part. It was like, I read, it's like rooting for her the whole time, but I didn't know if she was going to repent. And then when she does, I was, I was so happy. I like put the book down for like five minutes. I was like, <laughs> thank you. I was like super invested. Yeah. It's so, uh, I mean, and you, you feel the relief on your own part. You, you feel the, the elation on behalf of the priest. Thank God. (laughs) He's got something uh, tangible to keep him going. Uh, So, so beautiful. Okay. So also my second question about this is what's up with the hair? Her hair is described multiple times as right. The the golden lock of hair around her finger. It's described, her hair is described multiple times and then it's hair in the locket. Any thoughts on that? Ah. I no, uh, I I wasn't paying attention to to the descriptions of her hair. I did. I meant to go back and and check this detail. So maybe you remember. Yeah. But uh, the Mademoiselle Chantal also references a locket, and I thought it was a different locket. Uh, so she says something. I think about her her dad that made me think she carried around a lock of her father's hair in a locket. Yeah, I think that's right. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, which is then a, a, a significant kind of inverted parallel. Mm-hmm. Uh, she Same kind she, of thing though, the idol. Yeah. Right? She's got this bitterness wound up in her affection for this living man. And her mother had this affection, this toxic love for this dead son. And it created or it deepened the bitterness between them. And she resents her mother for loving the dead brother so much at the expense of her father. Uh, right. And then turning and a blind eye to the, to the, uh, and herself. Yeah, of course. Uh, and then turning a blind eye to the, uh, adulterous affair that's going on under their roof. Uh, yeah, so they, uh, it is a nice, um, parallel image then. She still, uh, she still carries this, the symbol of her own sin uh, that she has yet to cast away. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's right. I think that hair here, I mean, in this context of being like a relic of love, right? A token. Yeah. The um, one that will burn up. Yes. Uh, right? And it's is not... wound up. I like what you just yeah. said. It's all wound up. She keeps winding her own hair around yeah. her finger and the priest mm-hmm. notice it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, and it, it is something that is, it, it it can be separated from you too, right? Hair is like it, I grow it, but I could cut it off, right? <laughs> right. And right. Um, so that, um, I think, I think you're right. It's this token, this symbol of attachment um, that is both powerful and also seductive and enticing sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. All right. So in our final few minutes here, let's talk about Serafita. Oh, yeah. Um, Specifically, I mean, I was so... This contrast with the virgin child was very powerful to me. Right? Yeah. He has this description of the virgin as a child. And then right after that, he meets Seraphita, this dirty, the kind of malignant presence in his parish uh, oh. and who has done at, at a peasant level exactly what Mademoiselle Chantal has done to him at this kind of higher societal level and a more yeah. refined cruelty towards him. Um, and this, this, and Seraphita has done it like just overtly and in just like this very like vulgar kind of way. Right. Yeah. Um, this de Torcy has re- reflected on, but it seems to be what prompts initially 
the the image of of the virgin child in his mind. Uh, mm-hmm. Detorsi has had this kind of elegant homily <laughs> uh, yeah. on on the nature of uh, of the Virgin Mary's innocence, and uh, yeah, she is very much the the foil of that. Yes. Uh, he, the diabolical he, inversion of that. Yeah, uh, she has uh, a she has a knowledge of evil uh, mm-hmm. that is discernible, right? And that she plays up. Uh, there's always that, um, yeah. There's that kind of youthful, youthful knowing attitude that is always uh, sobering and saddening and frightening when you encounter someone who's who seems to be more better acquainted with wickedness than someone their age ought to be right yeah what else did you notice about this encounter uh the, well the, that uh that she too is overcome by his suffering yeah uh she is immediately not on guard, even in the way that we have seen her with him previously. Right. Uh, because he is so weak when, uh, when she finds him and that he, uh, so he starts, he starts when the Torsi is asking him questions about his interview with the Comtesse. He determines not to correct the account of the story that de Torsi has been given. Uh, he says, oh, well, I, I made her do it. She did it of her own choice. Like, ultimately, what does it matter? The outcome is the same. Uh, and so he's more and more content not to defend himself. So in that way, maybe he is, he really is beginning to mirror Christ in his passion. Uh, he doesn't open his mouth uh, to utter a defense for himself. Uh, and here too, uh, he wakes up and someone has come and hung a lantern by his head. And so he knows he has been seen or has been discovered. And for a moment, he contemplates trying to leave before whoever it is comes back and he has to face them. Uh, and so on the priest part, that's conspicuous here too. He's, he determines, uh, I mean, partly his weakness (laughs) forces him to stay where he is. But he also chooses, before he's tested his strength entirely, uh, to wait and face whoever it is. Uh, Say what they will about me. Uh, You know, there's there's no point in trying to. uh, I mean, there's, there's not much of an image to salvage here. So maybe not salvage his image, but doctor his image in any sort of artificial way, uh, which is in in our world and in our age, you know, it's not uncommon to encounter ministers who filter everything that they do and say through some calculus of how is this going to be perceived? How is this going to make me look? Uh, and he has just, he really has embraced that aspect of the passion uh, there's no, there's no lighting for the Instagram post. There's no checking his hair. Right? He's in the dirt, uh, with you know, his own bloody vomit all over him. And he's just gonna, he's just gonna sit and take what comes. Yeah. And then, and then it is an unexpected, uh, you know, <laughs> un, uh, unsaint, anti-saint. Uh, right. She she is. I mean, her name means, you know, a uh, little seraph, little angel. Uh, and in this moment, she actually is uh, some kind of ministering spirit to him, which is, uh, again, maybe is because he has willing he's been willing to empty himself, embrace his weak state. Uh, and, and that's that's what works. Mm-hmm. Is this a salvific moment for her? Uh it could be i i think this is maybe well knowing knowing where things go from here uh i think it could at least be the prelude mm-hmm. to something more significant we're going to see uh, another important encounter between them at the beginning of book 7 or chapter 7 mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. but it it certainly could be the opening of a door maybe yeah mhm 
Yeah. All right. Well, we are out of time for the day, but I we have time for final thoughts. Was there, did you have any final thoughts? Anything that you are looking for? And then, I mean, I know you've read it before. What should yeah. we, what should, what are maybe some threads that the novel has thrown out for us to follow into the final chapters of the book? Yeah, I, um, I'm going to make a comparison to what seems like a totally unrelated uh, work here. But one of <laughs> a movie I really love is M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable. Mm. You know this movie, Bruce yeah. Willis, Unbreakable? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and... uh, where he is... Samuel uh, L. Jackson, right? Samuel L. Jackson, yeah. And yeah. Bruce Willis's character, Samuel L. Jackson, plays this kooky guy, uh who is convinced Bruce Willis's character has superpowers that he is in fact impervious to injury. And this starts because at the beginning of the movie, he is the sole survivor of an awful train wreck that kills hundreds of people. And there comes a moment right in the fourth act of the movie when Bruce Willis, uh, who has been skeptical throughout finally embraces the idea that he is in fact impervious to harm and can do good with this, uh, with this gift. And, uh, and it's a great moment because he's has this sort of confidence and purpose uh, that he lacked throughout the, the early portions of the movie. And, And the, the, Theme then, or the trend, I think that's worth noting here is the priest coming into his own vocationally. Hmm. Uh, early in the novel, we've heard we get lots of priestly voices, uh, and at first, uh, some of the bad, <laughs> some of the bad priestly advice is advice that is universal. Uh, the really the dean of Blangement, I think, is the guy, the, the miserable old priest who gives lousy advice. And we'll have to talk about him more later because I think he's um, representative of the villains of the book. <laughs> uh, he gives lousy advice that's really just the sort of self uh, self consolation that everyone who's compromised with the world uh, makes to themselves by by giving as advice to other people. Uh, like, listen, kid, you don't know about the real world. Yep, that's uh, right. <laughs> and and this is the way that everything is, and all priests got to be this way, and you just got to, uh, whatever. Uh, and But then de Torcy uh, finally helps him understand the priestly vocation uh, as one that is, undertaken by many different kinds of men uh, and each of them does it differently or uh, uh, there are a number of ways to do it <laughs> uh, there are a number of kinds of priests to be it's not just you're this one kind or you're a bad priest or if you're not like the guy next door you probably should have been a monk instead uh, there are many ways to be faithful to the priestly vocation and uh, I think our priest is finally coming to some understanding of the way in which he is called to be a priest or the way in which he can be a good priest. Uh, and uh, I think we can look for that to to manifest itself in the next uh, the next section or the, the final chapters. Right. That's really good. Um, I was noticing throughout the book, this theme of misunderstanding and misinterpretation um, that happens in all the characters, including the priest about himself. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so for me, as I was reading the final chapters, uh, just seeing how that theme that has carried through the novel develops and, um, and and kind of what those threads of misunderstanding and misinterpretation what they what they lead to and what how the novel is commenting on uh, on whether or not that's a bad thing all the time, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and and 
how that how that misunderstanding and misinterpretation that our innate longing for justice wants to see everything vindicated yeah. but how how maybe it's more complicated than that in these last two chapters right um and so that that's my kind of final invitation to thought <laughs> as we go as we head into these last two i can't wait to read them again um yeah it's a great it's, yeah a great it's, ending yeah all right well uh all right well that's all for the day that's uh, all. we missed i know we missed david very much i wish he was here a couple of things um i will be creating the paralandra schedule today and yes. sending it to david and we will be getting that up uh, on substack and facebook uh and we'll be beginning to record our paralandra podcasts next week um so listeners we are we are coming for you if you are a subscriber to close oh, reads man. this is I mean, Paralandra, come on. Come on. You've got to join us. You've got to join us for Paralandra conversation. If you are a C.S. Lewis fan, if you have always been curious about the Ransom Trilogy, if you're already listening, uh, this is this is going to be really great. I just can't wait to talk about this with you guys. And um, it might it's going to be awesome. It might be worth uh, mentioning here again, or for the first time in a long time, that if there is a... If there is a book or a series that you would like to see covered uh, on the subscriber only series, subscribers often get to vote on those kinds of things. We we take subscriber feedback when we make those That's decisions. True. And and uh, it won't be long before we come to the end of the Space Trilogy. And uh, we'll be asking ourselves that big question again. What's next? What's next? That's yeah. right. So start thinking about that. Your favorite novels that we haven't covered on close reads or are too long for close reads. Um, I'm still rooting for Kristen Lovren's daughter at some oh, point. Um, but we'll, we'll see what happens next. If you are a Dickens lover, we promise to consider your request and reject it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> we've never done Dickens. That's really, um, I can't, I almost can't believe requested. it. Yeah. It's always requested. So keep Keep at us if you want some Dickens. So uh, if you are not a subscriber to Close Reads, if uh, you are listening here to the flagship podcast, um, we invite you to become a subscriber and become more connected with our core community. Uh, you can find out how to do so at www.closereads.substack.com. Uh, and you'll get access to a bunch of great content that i mean we we hope to provide great content here but if you want to go a little deeper get a little bit more contact with uh with david and tim and sean and i um and join in that core community please consider becoming a subscriber and joining in on that so sean go ahead well and i was just going to say speaking of uh facebook and substack i have really enjoyed the conversations that have gone on around this book yeah, uh, me so I too. Want to commend you all to uh, keep that up or uh, make your way over to the Substack if you're still just interacting on Facebook, uh, because there's some really, really great stuff. Uh, really insightful conversations yeah. going on over there. Um, and uh, and then next week we'll finish Diary of a Country Priest, and then the week after that we'll have our Q and A. So store up those questions. There's yes. lots and lots and lots Man. of things we hadn't haven't had a chance to talk about. So I'm That's hoping that'll come up on the Q&A. Uh, the last thing is that we have had our heads together as a Close Reads team, uh, the four of us, along with Graham Pittman, uh, to come up with a second conference. Uh, we always do the Close Reads Mountain Retreat. It's a tradition now, uh, but that can only take up to 20 people and that always sells out with a huge waiting list. Uh, and so for all of you who didn't get into the Mountain Retreat, but you want to talk about books with us and read books with us, we will be announcing very shortly, I think this week, uh, information on a conference coming up in August uh, and details for that will be coming. I'm going to give you nothing other than that. It will remain a mystery. You will have to keep your eyes out on social media uh, and we will be officially announcing next week, but we do have a conference opportunity available, a weekend opportunity to read with us uh, over the summer uh, for everybody. Um, so anything to add to that, Sean? 
just get nope. excited. It's worth the I wait. know. It's going to be great, man. And uh, I, this is something that, that David is going to have no um, comments on <laughs> the structure of. It will just be all is positive this even a good from conference? David. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things we love so much about David is he's always trying to improve things. Um, and which is why Close Reads is so, so, so great. That's, That's why fact. it's such an incredible community. We should, which, you know what, let's hire him back. I think, we, you know, we should, yeah. we should bring him back Effective from, immediately. The, from IR. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Put him back on the starting lineup. That was a sports ball reference that nice. I just did. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. You're welcome. Yep. All right. So uh, anything else that we need to report, Sean, anything upcoming? Go I'm find your, good. find our content. Keep your eyes out for our, um, for our summer conference. That's right. Uh, and, and that's it. All right. So uh, for David Kern, who is not here. For Timothy McIntosh. Oh my gosh. Guess no, we have that. more to ah, announce. Ah. I'm ashamed of myself right oh, now. Oh, me too. It's, yeah. Tim has welcomed a new member of his family, little Arden Ann McIntosh. She's absolutely stunningly beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and she and and Tim and Sean are already in negotiations for an arranged marriage. Oh yeah. Um we have it doesn't even have to be that it doesn't even have to be your youngest. You have multiple That's boys. true. I have many eligible uh well soon to be bachelors. one day eligible bachelors. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um so Arden is here. Uh, and she's beautiful and Galen is doing great and the family is settling in. And so that, I guess, is our final and most joyful announcement. Yeah, that's a big one. And now I will really close out the show. <laughs> for David Kern, for Tim McIntosh and Arden McIntosh nice. and Galen McIntosh <laughs> and Sean Johnson. I'm Heidi White. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Happy reading.